Stand to your feet. Let's read our text, and then I'll pray, but I'll pray over a couple things. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 17. Join me in chapter 5, verse 17. We're doing a message series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we're tying it uniquely to the idea of revival. And you'll see, we started this last week. Verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever teaches, whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder, and whosoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with them on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you that you will not come out there until you have paid the last quadrants. You've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it and throw it from you. But for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cast it off, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Would you pray over this with me? Father, would you bless what we've read? And now as we look at this text and look at this, even the idea that we see of a repentance, a change inwardly towards sin and a walking in a new life in Christ as a result. We see correction from our Savior. We see him correcting the false interpretations of the Pharisees, the, the religious elite Jews, they've, he's, he's correcting how they've perverted the word of God. Lord, we'll look at these two of the Ten Commandments, and then in coming weeks we'll look at the rest of these commandments, all from your word. Help us as we uniquely look at how we must repent like they were called to repent in this situation. We also ask that you be with some of these prayer requests that went out this week, that you bring Adam to faith, Sidney Milner's friend, um, that you'd let this sickness result in that, that you'd bless Bill Harris um, as he's in, in the Jewish home. Would you let visits and those that take him communion today, would you let it be an encouragement for our missionary, Gabor and Edna, for Gabor's mother, praise you that 
Um, there's, there's so much good ministry from his sons in Hungary doing towards her. Thank you for our ladies' ministry and having a time last night of gathering high school ladies and women together to fellowship. We praise you for the report from our missionary uh, in India, Srinivas, of, man, so many souls coming to you, but even, um, even something like food getting multiplied at a wedding and you getting glorified. That's also, we, we really do need your help. We, we'll raise money today that'll, that'll go towards the cost of this mission trip. Um, but we need, your people need to see this. And your people, we need to participate in this mission work in Mexico. And um, but Lord, there's all sorts of different reasons. Um, God, would you free people's schedules? Would you let off time be granted? If there is fear, would you let that be subsided? Would you let us have so many people from youth to children to parents um, to young to older to singles to marrieds go that it almost be as if we had to just have church down there that Sunday? That'd be really neat. God, would you let it spark our hearts? We need missionaries. We need more missionaries called. We need more missionaries from our church. We need more pastors. We need more that are called to, to love the church and to lead the church. Would you let this trip help to even do that? Would you, would you let it warm our hearts? Would you let it warm our pocketbooks? Would you let it warm um, our desire for the Great Commission? Would you let this mission trip do that? We're looking for it. We'll, we'll ask you to do it. Bless our time this morning, God's people said. Amen. Thank you so much for praying and being with and so last week we started talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and um, actually two weeks ago we did this as our youth retreat a couple weeks back, and I wanted to make sure and go with, through you as a church. Um, I projected how long it would take me to go through the Sermon on the Mount. That's chapter 5 through 7, and then we're going to jump into 2 Corinthians and exposition of 2 Corinthians. But um, I'm, I'm once again lagging behind on how much ground I'm covering, but that's okay because I want to make sure and cover the ground well. If you were trapped in some kind of persecuted country as a missionary and you only had a couple chapters that you could disciple with and you could only smuggle into North Korea a couple chapters out of the Bible, I would recommend Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You could probably do a lot in your discipleship. So I want to take a look at it. And this is, the idea today, once again, is this idea of repentance. And why would I even mention this? Is, is Unless you have no idea what's going on, it seems that... The Lord is bringing revival um, in many facets of our, of our land and globe. Um, now, um, I know there's some that are skeptical, and that's kind of normal. You kind of have to be. But also, I would say this. Um, man, it's been really unique what's happened at Asbury. It's been unique what you've seen happen at other um, colleges. And, and time will tell the, the truth of it. But right now, I, I don't want to be skeptical as much as I just want to say, Lord, let us participate in revival right here, right here. Let us be revived. And in all honesty, revival, I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. But we see it happen when God's people pray, when God's people repent. Then the floodgates of heaven. And I think as Christians, many times we're neophytes. We're just infantile when it comes to the idea of repentance. We sometimes don't even understand it. I love that God, by His providence has put us in this 
place in this text in Matthew 5, so much of this directs us towards the idea of repentance. What Jesus is speaking towards in the text is for a repentance, a change of what the religious Jews had actually thought about God's law and Jesus coming in and saying, no, 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 you got it wrong. This is actually what God meant in the Old Testament. This is what is supposed to be done with it. So I love that he calls for repentance here. I'm thankful. Now let me talk about repentance and once again, let me give you a good definition of repentance. It's a change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin into God. It's a change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin into God. I told you this last week, the repentance of the church at Thessalonica. It's this idea of you don't turn, we turn, here's sin, here's God. It's not this false, oftentimes Christian false repentance of a, I'm turning to God, but I'm still looking back at sin. No, repentance is... I'm actually turning to God from sin. He's the pleasure. He's the joy. No longer does sin have the desire. We used the illustration last week of of Lot's wife. Remember, she left Sodom, but Sodom wasn't out of her heart. She was still looking back. Although she was going where God wanted her, her heart wasn't there. And in the text today, Jesus' point to the original recipients is that God is not looking for some outward um, conformity to his law or adding extra rules to try to get away from conformity to his holy law, what he's saying is there has to be a deeper conformity to the law of God. A deeper conformity that starts at the heart, right? It starts at the heart. Now this start at the heart thing happens for those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ today, the Bible says from Jeremiah 31 that you have a new heart, that God will bring a new heart. If you're in Christ, God has given you a new heart. If you place faith and repentance in Jesus, you have a new heart. A changed heart, one that can obey from the heart, one that can obey rightly, one that can, one that, the one that can pursue righteousness because the righteousness of Christ has been put on your account. Last week we talked about unbelievers. This week I want to talk more about how that works with believers. Unbelievers, if you're an unbeliever, if you're online and you're an unbeliever, God wants you right now. This is what God's will is. Repent and believe. That is what God is commanding you to do. If you're in Christ today, you've already, you already believe but if you're in Christ, God wants you to, and us, I say you, can I say us, right? Us to repent. We never repent of repenting. Listen, we never repent of repenting. Now, our repentance is not so we can not be condemned. At 16, when I became a follower of Jesus, my salvation was settled. In the grand sense of heaven, I am forgiven. I have the righteousness of Christ put on my account by what he's done. His blood has gone that far. I am righteous in God's sight. Positionally, practically, I'm not righteous. Practically, I'm still struggling. Practically, it's like three steps forward, one step back. Practically, I still repent. Practically, I still have to see sin as God sees it, confess it, Look at it as God looks at it. Love him more so that I hate sin even more. A person has not really come to repentance until they have come to a point of hating that sin and loving Jesus even more. That's the problem with most of our repentance many times. We think we've repented just because we've confessed. Great thing to do. But do we hate it in our soul? Does it sicken us to our core? The good news is in the text, Jesus says... 
unless your righteousness, this is in verse 20, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Most people read that and go, uh-oh. These, I've read about these scribes and Pharisee guys, man. They, they were really particular. Like they, they were very serious, and they had all these extra rules. And Jesus' point was this. Yeah, they had all these extra rules because they tried to make themselves righteous. Instead, they didn't have the changed heart. You actually have a different, this idea in the text that you see in verse 20 of righteousness surpassing theirs is a righteousness of a changed heart and life through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's a deeper righteousness, right? It's a deeper heart change, right? We can actually obey God because we've been given a new heart in Christ, a new life. We are new creations from the inside out. So we never repent of repenting. And we repent. It's a change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin and to God. And must I say this, it also, you'll see it reflected, we'll see it reflected in how we treat and love others, right? The more we've repented towards God, the more we'll actually love others, right? And we'll actually love those who aren't easy to love. This is a life of repentance. We never Repent of repenting. Now, last week I gave you an outline from J.C. Ryle uh, in his book, Repentance. Good news, there's three copies of the book, Repentance, back here, right? It's like 50 pages by J.C. Ryle. Also, even better news, if you saw your email this past week, Beth Rose discovered that it's free on uh, Amazon Kindle. Did I say that right? It's on Kindle, right? Not Kindle, but on Kindle, right? Kindle does not know repentance, right? He's a doll. But you have it right here. J.C. Ryle says a couple things that I think are really great. I said these to you last week, and I'll refer to them a little bit in this message as we go through this text. True repentance begins with knowledge of sin. True repentance begins with knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments still help us to know sin. But let me go a little bit further. The Old Testament helps us to know sin. It does. Like, for instance, you'll see later in the text in a couple weeks here when we talk about it, but when we get to like the issue of divorce, the Old Testament helps and creation helps inform us how to view that kind of thing. So true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. We'll see this all right here in the text as we make our way through it. You know, what's really interesting is when you read the Old Testament, by the way, do you know that there are some pastors who are telling you you should not read the Old Testament. Let's leave the Old Testament behind. If you ever hear a guy say that, please turn him off, right? He is not someone that you want to listen to. He's called a false prophet, right? Don't do that. But I would say this. When you read the Old Testament, sometimes, I'm, let's just be honest, that this is me trying to begin with a knowledge of sin, right? Seeing the true holiness of God. When you read the Old Testament sometimes, do you look at some of the judgment that God did and go, Ooh, man, that seems kind of draconian. You know what I'm talking about? Like, remember in Leviticus when they were just getting into the sacrificial system and Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire? Then what happens? They're gone. And you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, God, can't we? Man, that just seems a little severe. Are, y'all, are you feeling me? You get what I'm saying, right? What about when Moses is going to the promised land, right? And, and God's given him water many times. And man, bless Moses' heart. He had a bunch of grumbling complainers. I mean, bless his heart, really. I mean, 
read the book of Numbers, and you would just be like, okay, I get it why he hit the rock. Like, I, mean, I, I mean, I totally get it. I mean, at least he hit the rock and didn't hit one of them. I mean, if I was him, I would have took a swing. And then God says, you're not going to get to see the promised land. Shouldn't have done that. You'd be like, man, Lord, you're so, man, Lord, it seems like you're so severe. What about the plagues you see in the book of Numbers that come on Israel all the times they keep grumbling and complaining? What about when God brings them out of Egypt and then sends 12 spies, right, in Numbers to look out the promised land? And then they come back and 10 of the 12 say, we can't do it. Everybody gets very unbelieving. And then God disciplines them by the, that generation basically wanders in the wilderness for 40 years and dies off, and the second generation get to go in, and you're kind of like, man, just because they were a little, because they were afraid of a couple giants, Lord, you're going to do that? I mean, there's been big things in my life I was afraid of. You're going to make them wander around? You ever look at these things and thought, man, it just seems like God is a little severe. Well, here's the problem that I've noticed in my own soul. I am swallowed up with so much modern humanistic thinking that my judgments and emotional reactions are often corrupted. I want you to hang with me. Let me tell you this. That much, uh, I'm, I'm swallowed up with modern humanistic thinking and judgments and emotional reactions that are actually corrupted. We don't repent when we don't see how holy God is. God was right in every judgment he did. And this is what I've noticed in my own soul. The more I repent, the more I practice repentance, the more I see the holiness of God. And that every judgment that God does is right. And that every time he brought judgment, it was never in a position of ignorance, right? And that when, now we're looking at it from a very man's a good person sanitized. But like when Nadab and Abihu or the 12 spies, their rebellion was not this kind of thing like, man, I just had a bad day. It was cosmic treason against the infinite God. But I keep looking at these things. I'm just telling you. I keep looking at these things with my sanitized 21st century modernistic mind and not with a mind of repentance. I want to tell you. People say, why do, good thing, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does anything good happen to us? Be honest with you. Because we're not good people. We're not. And if that offends us to hear it, there's a problem. That's our problem. We don't repent when we think we're that good. We are not that good, but Jesus is. We're not that good, but at 16, the work of Jesus on the cross has been applied to my account. And now I have the righteousness of Christ in me so that positionally I'm righteous before God. Practically I'm not, but that positional standing has made me to be in a place where now I can practically live out what I am positionally. Are you feeling me on that? Do you get this? So the repentance that's in my life is really just a reflection of what's actually there as a result of the finished work of the cross. So true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. There will never be a knowledge of sin without God's word. And Jesus comes in in our text today and just points out the sin that... that and get the, get the deal, they thought they had God's word right. But Jesus comes in and says, I'll give it to you right. True repentance produces sorrow for sin. A sorrow for sin. His, we, we often do this. We minimize sin. I do. And we blame shift sin. 
It started in the garden, didn't it? When God comes to Adam, who does he blame shift to? Eve. When God comes to Eve, she blame, toward, blame shifts towards who? Satan, right? It's always somebody else's fault. No, it's our fault. I mean, that's part of repentance is we no longer look around and try to find someone else. Now, many of you are married in here today, and you know, we'll see this in our own lives, those who are married, oftentimes our marriages would be so much better if we just start repenting at, at, at <laughs> repentance at our own life and heart. How many times have we said to ourselves, my marriage could be so much better if they would change A, B, C, and D? Actually, the truth is, what would really happen if, if God did a work in us in A, B, C, and D? True repentance confesses, makes, produces a confession of sin. It will ask, it will admit sin, it will confess sin. If there's repentance in our church, we'll see it when we... We'll see it not only when we edify, we'll see it when parents sin against their kids. They'll actually say those words, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? We'll hear children say it, we'll say it to each other. We won't use really, uh, I would say really sanitized words that aren't admitting guilt. A lot of times when we even admit a guilt to someone, we'll say words like, well, I apologize. You know that word actually apologize is just a legal defense word? It's that, that, and it's so much easier. Try doing this. The next time there's time to repent of sin, try doing this. I promise you, it will hurt your heart, but it'll be a good hurt, right? Say, I sinned against God. I sinned against you. This is what I did. Will you forgive me? If you've never done that before, try it. The first time you do it, you will be speaking in tongues, right? You will barely be able to do it. You'll just like kind of just melt out. I mean, you, I'm just the truth. True repentance leads to a thorough breaking off from sin. We'll see this in our text. True repentance shows itself by producing in the heart an established habit of deep hatred of all sin. You'll know it. You'll see a hatred of sin. And this, and this is not from J.C. Ryle, but this is kind of my kind of backside. True repentance results in a desire for God, a joy for God, a love for God that extends to others. If you want to see the difference between someone that has, I would say, a false sorrow and someone has a godly sorrow, look at Judas. The Bible says Judas repented, but he didn't have a real repentance because it led him to death and destruction, right? He committed suicide. But we see Peter, who he did pretty bad himself, but we see in the Scriptures him restored to God, joy in God, and we see Peter going upwards. When there is repentance in our life, not only is there an admitting of sin, but there is a turning in faith to the Savior. So repentance is not just, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've done wrong. That is part of it. Then you realize there's nothing you can do with your sin but go to the Savior in faith. See, there are some Christians that have acknowledged their sin, but they've not run to Jesus. Who, we've not run to him where it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So part of repentance is not only the confession part, but also believing what God has said about the work of the cross. So now that I've laid out some repentance, I want to go through the text. Are you still with me? Are you okay? Now look at verse 17. Jesus says this. By the way, I want you to notice how many times through the text Jesus says, I. Verse 17, he says, I. Verse 17, I. 18, I. 20, I. Verse 22, I say. Verse 26, I say. Verse 28, I say. Do you get the deal? He's basically correcting them and say, this is what you've been saying. It's wrong. Let 
let the opinions of man be a, lie, be a lie and God be true, right? He says, let me tell you actually what these things mean that you've been saying. And the, the commands that we're going to look at today are commands six and seven that have to do with anger and adultery. And Jesus is telling them, you religious people, you have it wrong. Let me tell you the right interpretation of what God's word says. A lot of people think in this text that, that maybe Jesus was adding or changing his mind to what was said in the Old Testament. No, he was actually telling them, this is what I meant for you to understand, and you have gotten it wrong ever since. You actually tried to make these commands easier to obey, and by you're trying to make it easier to obey, you sanitize it down, and now you're not even living according to it. Look at verse 17. I'll start off first to give a little help. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come, he's speaking to the religious elite here, the scribes and Pharisees, do not think that I've come to abolish, and his disciples, do not, there's a mixed crowd there, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now when it says the law of the prophets, the understanding would be the entire Old Testament. That's what we would be dealing with. He's saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I've not come to do away with what I've written. It's not, it's, it's, I'm not come to put that behind. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. When it, this word fulfill means to fill up. He's saying, I, am, I will show you by my life exactly how the commands were meant to be lived. I will show you by my words exactly what this meant. I will show you by my righteousness what is meant. I will fulfill it. But it does not mean God has changed his mind on his holy standards, right? It's still sin to commit adultery. It's still sin to commit, um, to, to be, to murder, as we see in the text. So he says this in verse 18. For truly I say to you. Now guys, just know, he wouldn't say the word I say to you if he wasn't making a correction. He's making a correction. We'll show you more of this. For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. By the way, have heaven and earth passed away yet? Okay, hadn't happened yet. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he says, I have come to fulfill it, and fulfill doesn't mean I've done away with it. It means I am the perfect representation. I speak the perfect words. I am the perfect embodiment of what God meant in the Old Testament. The Old Testament points towards me. I am the, I, and I'm actually, in a minute, I'm going to correct some of the things you actually thought about the law and give you actually the right interpretation of it, the one who is the true interpreter. So he, he comes in, he lets them know this now, I'm going to throw a, I don't, I don't think anybody's back there at this, so I can't do this. But if you were to, don't do it right now because you're not supposed to you know, be playing around on your phones, right? You're supposed to be here with me, right? But when you go home later today, before you take your Sunday nap, just Google, right? If you don't know what Google is, I can't help you, right? But what Google is, what, I was about to explain what Google is. Can't do that. I already said I wouldn't. I'm a liar now. Now I already need to repent. So go and just go Hebrew alphabet, right? Just, just punch that in later today, right? And you're going to notice something. The smallest letter in that Hebrew alphabet, that is, that's the, actually the yod. That's what it's talking about, the smallest letter. And then a stroke is, oftentimes, you'll see like a, um, a horn. You ever see, like you got kind of basic lettering, but then sometimes you'll see like a little horn at the end of a letter, right? That's what it's talking about, the stroke. It's a horn. So he's saying from the smallest Hebrew letter to even the little horn that sometimes gets put at the end of a letter, all that is going to be fulfilled. So Jesus is just saying, 
My word is that serious, and what I'm about to tell you is that serious, that all will be fulfilled in me. So Jesus doesn't do away with the Old Testament. I'm telling you, if you... Um, but one of the most popular ones is a guy by the name of Andy Stanley in Georgia, right? He's got a really big church. Big church doesn't mean anything, right? I know someone who's got a bigger church, right? But, what's real, but he actually will tell you not to go after the Old Testament. He has publicly told Christians to put that away. So just know when you're listening to that guy, be very wary. He's got a lot of great feel-good messages. He'll make you feel really great, but feeling great can still send you to hell. So we look here in the text, he says this, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, my Old Testament, we should not do away with it in verse 19. And in fact, teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but anybody that says put the Old Testament away is not what Jesus is telling us. Then whosoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All of God's word is meant for us. Then Jesus says in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 20, have you ever looked at verse 20 and been like, that's a very difficult text to understand? Haven't we all? But here's what he's telling you in verse 20. And you're going to see this in the text in a minute. They had created extra laws and rules to add to God's commandments. So in the end, they thought they could obey, but really they just basically sanitized and weren't doing his commandments anymore. And Jesus comes in and he's telling them, listen, that's this man-made righteousness, but I actually have a deeper righteousness. A righteousness that comes from a changed heart through the shed blood of Christ. A change from the inside that goes to the outside. A repentance that never stops repenting. A change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin into God. This is. So a lot, a lot of times when people look at this, they'll go, wait a minute, I've got to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And, and it's almost like someone looks at it as like a hammer, like I've got to obey things better than they did and it's really like a shovel it's like no actually i've got to dig deeper the scribes and pharisees thought they were righteous by what they did a christian actually realizes they're righteous by what christ did right two different ways the obedience that a christian has is not from this idea of outward conformity to get god, to get something from god it's actually an inward disposition because we've been so given something by god totally different now look in verse 21. He puts it out there and, and shows this. You have heard that the ancients were told. By the way, he's not commending. He's not really commending what he's about to say to them, right? Like he's saying, you've been told some things that are wrong. Your rabbis have told you some things that are wrong. There's some truth, but wrong. By the way, this is how most false teaching happens. There's a little bit of truth, and then there's error, and they get mixed together, and it's hard for people to tell. That's what happens here. Look at verse 21. You've heard the ancients were told you shall not murder. By the way, that's a good commandment. That's there. That's the sixth commandment. We would say yes and amen. We see that in Exodus 20. But whosoever murders shall be guilty before the court. So Jesus says, hey, you've been told by your rabbis, your ancients, right? That you shall not murder. That's a commandment. And their interpretation is if you murder, you'll be guilty before the court. Now, actually, in the Old Testament law, 
if you murdered what actually happened to you? You died, right? You took someone's life, innocent life, you took it, and then the death penalty, right? That, that, and that, that was actually what God had said for Israel in their Old Testament law. Now, I'm not trying to get into the death penalty conversation, but what I'm saying is this. They weren't even covering the ground. So then they say, well, if you murder, you'll go before the court. That's the thing, right? So if you murder, it was you'll go before the court and they'll make a decision. It may result in stoning. It may not. Of course, y'all kind of know this. Do you know that court systems can be manipulated, right? So we'll, it all, So in the end, it, a lot of times it depended on the resources and who the person was, what would really happen to them. But what they did is said, well, don't murder. We're going to send you to the court. The court will make, because you murdered, the court will make a decision on what the penalty is going to be. And thus now we are keeping the law of God. As long as we don't murder, we're keeping the law of God. And then Jesus says, you know what? I say to you, you've been wrong this whole time. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't murder. But you thought you were covering the full gamut of this by just simply going, the, the addition you had to this was send it to the court, the court will make a decision. And Jesus says, no, actually, there's something that happens before physical murder, and there's murder in the heart. That was there way before. Like, you, you, you went and tried to make up some rules, and, and I want to tell you, I am the fulfillment of this. I'm going to tell you perfectly what is meant by thou shalt not murder. You should not physically murder, but you should not murder in the heart. All physical murder happens because there's first been murder in the heart. Are we all aware that no one murders just because, just because you know, they you know, just didn't get enough, you know, enough carbs at breakfast, right? That's not why people murder. We murder because we first murdered in the heart. We murder because we first practice anger of the soul. We murder because we have a sinful disposition. We have had sinful anger on the inside. So look what Jesus says in verse 22. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Just so you know, he was going against everything they've been told by their rabbis, right? He had said, no, you think you just go before the court if you physically murder. I'm going to tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already sinned before. You're already a murderer. You're already needing to go before the court. And look what he does. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which most of our translations just transliterate that. We don't. Absolutely no, although if you have an NASB, it'll say the word like you good for nothing, or ESV may say insult. Uh, my LSB says Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. He's just saying that this anger of the heart, actually, it'll send you to court. It'll send you before the Sanhedrin. Then keep looking in verse 22. But whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough. You fool, that's the word moros. Anybody have an idea what the word moros is connected to? Moron, you moron, shall be guilty enough into the fiery hell. So Jesus says, you've sanitized my law. You've sanitized it. You've thought murder is only this thing of something you do physically, and you've even sanitized it to the point of just saying, well, you'll go to the court. But let me tell you how serious the law of God is. It's not only what's happening on the outside, but it's happening on the inside and when you even go so far as to say, you moron, doing it in a way that shows forth sinful anger, you're guilty of fiery hell. You're guilty before God. So repentance is this, once again, a change of heart towards sin 
that results in a change of life away from sin into God. Do you know that word anger in verse 22? It's from the Greek word orgizo, which is this idea of simmering anger that does not get turned off. It's kind of like a pot, right? you got a pot on the stove and it's boiling. This is, when, this is the kind of anger it's talking about. It's talking about instead of turning it off, you just keep it boiling and going. You keep stewing and simmering and simmering. You know, God's one of the, there's a reason why this is, I mean, he didn't pick out all ten in this passage, right? He picked out two, and it was anger. You know, some of the repentance that God's people have to start repenting of, it's anger. We all know it, don't we? Don't we know it? I mean, how many times we go through our day thinking about what this person has done to us, stewing over it, refusing to turn off the burner? Thinking the whole time, well, this makes me feel better. No, it just makes you self-righteous. And in the end, you can't see your own sin. Jesus comes in and says, I say to you, you've just kept God's law, something external, but I'm going to give you something that, that, that was already there in the Old Testament. You just didn't see it. I'm going to give you something that's from the heart, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, something that's going to change you from the inside. So verse 23, he gets, it was really interesting. When God changes you from the inside, right? It says, this is our definition. A change of heart towards sin that results in a change of life away from sin to God. So an inward change that makes an outward change, right? Now watch how you see it in the text. If there's this change on the inside, verse 22, if there's this change, if you see it as God sees it, if you see your, I mean, just so we all understand, all the simmering of sinful anger in our souls, it's enough to be guilty of fiery hell. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but I'm saying this. If you're not in Christ, the, the sin of sinful anger, stewing it in your soul, is worthy of hell, right? And when Christians, when we who are in Christ stew over that sin, we are living like hell. That's us. It's the opposite of how we've been created. We have a righteousness that surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees. We have a repentance. We, we never stop repenting. Now, a change of heart results in a change of life. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you present your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. <laughs> so, now what's interesting in here, how far does a change of heart, how far does a repentance in our life go? You know, a lot of times we'll do this. If we even, if we identify anger in our heart and we've been harboring it or we've done something towards somebody else, it, man, it's a big step towards Jesus if you go and actually try to solve it with that person, right? But here, we even go a little bit further. It's not, he's now saying it's not even verse, 20, verse 22 and 23, it's verse 23 and 24, it's not, you're angry, it's that you think, what? Someone else is angry towards you. Isn't this interesting? How far does that righteousness surpassing go? Even the fact that if you know someone has something against you, that you wouldn't avoid them or ghost them or just go, well, delete, or oh, not my Facebook friend anymore. They would actually say, I'm going to go. I'm going to go for it. I'm, like, I want to get this right before I go back to church. I want to get this right before I take communion. 
By the way, that's why I love that we take communion every week because it's a fresh, I mean, it's a fresh, like, indictment. Even there's been some times I, there's been some times that I don't have anything against anybody, but if I've learned that someone else has something against me and I've not yet approached that person, I won't take communion. I'm like, I, I can't do this yet. Like, I know, and, and I've, not, I've not made that initial effort. So he says in verse 26, Truly I say to you, you will not... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 25. Y'all knew that, right? Look at verse 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. So he's going back to this idea that they have attached everything to... The, to if you've murdered, you just go before the court. They, they've skipped the whole transgression against the, against the Lord. They've skipped the idea of repentance. It's this man-made, just go before the court, whatever the court says. They've skipped the holiness and righteousness of God. But he goes back to verse 25, and he says something that ties in to verse 22. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison." For truly I say to you, you will not come out there until you have paid the last quadrant, penny. Basically, he says, in, in this kind of deal, the way the rabbis have worked it, when you're going to law, to court with a brother, you can actually legally solve that issue on the way, and it'd actually be much better, because if the judge makes a pronouncement, there's no going back, there's no negotiating, you're guilty. He said, actually, take care of this way ahead. And so Jesus' kind of encouragement is, hey, actually... Why don't you go ahead and take care of this right now, right? If you've sinned against somebody, take care of this right now. So before it was, you know someone has something against you. Here it's, you know you've done something wrong. Take care of it. The longer you, Because if you don't take care of it and you get before the earthly court judge that the Pharisees are talking about, it's not going to go good for you. But the ultimate thing he's trying to get you to see is there's a greater judge who sees all, knows all. Are we aware that, G, that God is not ignorant? to the sin of our hearts? Are we all aware of this? That he actually knows about this? That we may think, well, it's not that bad, the bitterness I have towards her, because no one knows about it, neither does she. The Lord knows. Man, doesn't he? So, it, it could be guys too. Guys, guys hate on each other too, right? We're, we're equal opportunity sinners here. Now, keep going, and we're, that's the sixth commandment. By the way, I, let me encourage you this. We're going to speak more about this, but it's just a question. You can go think about this later. Do we still believe that God wants us to obey the Ten Commandments? Amen, right? It's not a bad thing. We don't earn our righteousness by it, but it still it shows us we're sinners, but also shows us what God's like. We still believe that. But have you ever wondered, why are we obeying all the commandments, but there's one that we've decided to punt on, right? And that's having, that's having a Lord's Day. Why do we punt on that one? We'll come back to that here in the future. Look at verse 27. But I've heard that, uh, he says, but you've heard that it's said, you shall not commit adultery. By the way, that's a good, that's commandment number seven. That's good. You should not commit adultery. That's a good thing. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, a lot of people go like Jesus added this heart stuff. Jesus was adding this stuff. No, he wasn't. 
what's the last of the Ten Commandments? What's commandment number ten? Thou shalt what? Not covet. Now, that involves in that text, like, what your neighbor has, but that word covet is a word of desire. It's a desire word, right? Actually, if you don't covet, you won't break the rest of the commandments, right? That's how it works. We sin starting at a desire level, at a heart level. So what, this isn't like something new, actually. He's, he's just telling them what was already God's standard. They had thought, it's only adultery if I do the action. Otherwise, I'm righteous. But Jesus comes in and says, no, actually, this is how far your sin has gone, and this is how perfect God's standard of righteousness is, that if you're doing it in your heart, you're already doing it. Now, don't you think that was convicting at the moment? Isn't it still? I just, let's just be honest. No amount of lust is okay. And it's a both ways thing. You know what's interesting, and you're probably going to get mad at me, but, you know, so what? Here's the deal. Men lust often by what they see. Like, for instance, there's a billboard with a scantily clad woman. A man can look at that and go, oh, what would it be like to be with her? That's lust. But then a woman can see that same billboard and go, if I only look like her. Both are guilty. Oh, I know, he looks more guilty because he's, he's just a pervert. It's all right here. Actually, I would encourage you to do this. I mean, by the way, I'm, I'm always, don't, don't think I'm, <laughs> I talk to men about lust and, you know, fight lust myself. But, but I will say, say this. I've, I, I, I don't deal with women and what they dress and wear and all that kind of stuff. But I will tell you the principle of Scripture is that the desire of a godly woman, there's nothing wrong with, with, with being beautiful. There's nothing wrong with fashion and design. Those things just can't be more important than the beauty of the heart. You get it? And if you're wondering, like, am I, as a woman, susceptible to this kind of idea? I would say, yeah. If in the mirror there's a greater concern for what everybody is seeing outwardly, then there is a concern for what God is seeing inwardly. Then I would say, sister, you're in a dangerous place in life. And by the way, it'll make you do things that are really silly. Like, you, you'll actually think it's bad to get older. You'll, you'll think that, like, when did we ever think getting old was bad? Yeah, it's, it's going to hurt, but you can't threaten us with heaven. I mean, why is that a bad thing? Right? Why is that a bad thing? We, we want to cover it up and act like, no, I'm not getting older. That just means we're getting closer to heaven. When was heaven a bad thing? I digress. Verse 29 and 30, and we'll be done. Y'all okay? So here's repentance in this area. Men, 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 women, women, women. Not a hint. That's God's standard. Not a hint. So listen, if, if you've got social media, I just want you to understand something about social media. It is not your friend, and Satan loves it. Not also, I mean, social media can be used for great things. I personally wouldn't have known a lot about the Asbury revivals if it wasn't for social media and got to follow. So great, redemptive, God can use it. But it's also not your friend. If you're a man, it knows you're a man. 
right? It's created these things called reels and little shorts that if you've noticed as a man, anytime you get on there, it's trying to pop something up that's just a little bit on the edge, right? Not a hint. I'm just telling you, if you're a man and, and you find yourself clicking through reels and you know what's going on, just because someone's fully clothed doesn't mean you haven't still gone against the Lord in your heart. You know what I mean. You're probably going to have to do what we're going to talk about in the next text. Either you're going to have to shut down that account, merge it with your wife so you can't have your own private, or just throw that phone against the wall and just receive the pure joy of the moment. It might not be so great later, but it'll feel really good in the moment. Verse 29. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. He's not talking about mutilating of the body. He's saying, whatever is causing you to be far from Jesus, get rid of it. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. How serious is Jesus about the lust of our heart? How serious? It's condemnable. I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation, but I will say that it is of hell. Lust is of hell. Do we get this? So when Jesus comes in and says, I say, I say, I say, I say, they thought, as long as I don't commit it physically, as long as I don't commit murder physically, doesn't matter what's going on inside here. And Jesus says, nope, nope, nope. There's a repentance that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, a repentance that is deep down, a repentance that is so much of a change in the inward man that he sees sin for what it is. And he, does, he goes to God, not looking back towards sin at all, but just looking towards the Savior. There's a difference. Verse 29, it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. By the way, just a side note, the control of the heart is often tied to the eyes. I'll say that again. The control of the heart is often tied to the eyes. It is. Verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus says, sometimes you have to radically amputate. And by the way, I want you to see the connection between the eye and the hand. The, the heart and the hand. I mean, everything's connected. What, what we do on the outside is connected to what's going on in the inside. And this is the beauty that we have in Christ. We never repent of p- repenting, which means we never stop. We never stop looking at things from an inner perspective. And how do we know what's going on in the heart? Because the heart's deceptive. All you got to look is what's happening on the outside. How do I know what's inside of orange? I mean, I know because I've squeezed one before, but if you handed me an orange right now, actually, I think I saw an orange out there, right? How do you really know what's inside of an orange? You you peel it? Well, that's a very sanitary way to do it. I'd say you just squeeze it because I like it, right? And what's inside of an orange, you'll know it as soon as it gets squeezed. You want to know what's in your heart? What comes out when you get squeezed, right? What comes out? So he calls us to repentance for our sinful anger. He calls us to repentance for our lust. And he calls us to himself. Worship team, make your way up here. And I got a story, couple, two stories to tell you as we close out this portion of our worship service. Um, two stories. I think our repentance is shallow because I do think as, as they added to God's word these silly things that made things okay, I think we've done that too. We've done it too, actually. 
You know, it's great. You can get so much good information now. But you know, a lot of Bible teachers are adding things to try to sanitize and make it okay for us to sin. It happens so much. Especially when we look in the coming weeks at divorce, we have so many theologians that are trying to create these extra rules so that we can pursue an unbiblical divorce. And it's infecting God's people. But here's one of the things I've noticed. A lot of times our repentance, we, we're not doing it because we're just kind of distracted, right? So if you read the repentance book by J.C. Ryle, he tells a story that at St. Paul's clock, right, it rings at the beginning of every hour, right? It rings at the beginning of every hour. But the people who live in London say this. They say, we never hear it during the day. Because what's going on during the day? You're going to work. Trains, buses, you know, everything's going. You know, they don't hear it during the day. But when do they hear it? At night. In the dead of the night, you can hear that bell. And people say, we don't hear it during the day. They hear it at night. And why is that? Because there's a quietness. I'll just be honest with you. It's giving you a, why are we so bad at repenting? Here's one thing. I don't think we've created a space for quiet in our soul. I'm getting more convicted that years ago I took that commandment about a day of rest and went, well, Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath, so we don't need that. And I'm starting to wonder, have we actually just put ourselves in a position where we can never hear the bell of repentance ring in our soul? You notice like nothing's sacred about Sunday anymore? Have y'all noticed that? Nothing's sacred about Sunday. Nothing. I mean... I mean, every institution in the world now throws their stuff, stuff on Sunday. I'll end with this. As we're looking at repentance, some people go, man, I just don't know how to get to Jesus uh, on this. And I will tell you, he doesn't turn you away. He's offering his hands full and free. Uh, I'll illustrate it this way. Have you ever tried to clean a bowl that's had spaghetti sauce in it? And just cleaned it with hot water? You notice you can clean... A, something with hot water and get it pretty good without a drop of soap. Have you ever noticed that? But you ever notice you can't do that with spaghetti? I've tried it, right? Where I've just run the hot water into everything and it's like there's that film that never goes away. What do you need? You need something that can clean it. You need something that can clean it. You got some soap, it'll clean it out. Here's where you're at today. Here's where we're at. It's, it's, it might be we've been trying to clean up our sin just with a little hot water and we need, the, we need the cleansing fountain blood of Jesus. He's the only one that can actually clean up the residue of that sin. And if this is where you're at today, come to Jesus. Love him. Before we do, I have a sister here at the back that has something wonderful that she wants to tell us. Oh. Well, hold on. If a question, the people online... Could not, would not be able to hear you, so they would probably want to hear this. So my question in this text, it always talks about brother this, brother that. Are, is this stuff he's saying meant for us in the church, or is it also towards people who are not in the church? Mm, I would say this. Like if you have anger towards a non-Christian, mm. if you have you know that a non-Christian has something against you. You know, yeah. things, like, things like that. I like that. I like that. I'm thinking about just answering that at our edify okay, time. Okay, you can just answer later. It's okay. Now, here's what I want to do. At our edify time today, I want to answer that. 
And actually, I think it would be really good. I love that question, right? We're going to answer that fully. So guess what? Another motivation to stay for our edified time. That's an awesome question. All right? Let's stand to our feet. Thank you, Beth. That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. I can't wait to answer it. I'm eager. Father, we're going to sing to you now. But some of our souls may be hurting because we have been acting in rebellion and sinful anger. We've been bitter. We have seen that bitterness on the inside make its way to the out. We have yelled. We have slandered. We have tried to hurt with our words. We have tried to hurt with our presence. And then we've lusted. So God, help us. Let us repent. Help us. Thank you for you being the only one that can cleanse us from our sin. We bless your name. Let us sing to you. Bring someone to Jesus who's not in Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Let's, let's sing together.